If you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 133. Psalm chapter 133 is going to be our text for today. And as you turn there, I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read from God's Word. Psalm 133. Church family, this is the Word of God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of our message today is Unifying Church. Unifying Church. A few weeks ago, some friends here in our church, some friends of ours, some of our church family, gave my daughters a little gift for the Christmas season. It's a little, a little Christmas tree that sits on, on a tabletop or on a nightstand, uh, wherever you want to put it in your home. And this little tree is beautiful, and my, my daughters love it, and it's got little lights on it, and, uh, and it lights up a room. Well, we had it sitting on the, uh, on the dining room table, and the other day I looked in there, and I noticed that, that it was on, the little tree was on, uh, but it didn't look very bright. Now, I think I even mentioned to my wife, I said, I think the batteries are already going dead in that. We've already run it so much. Batteries are going dead. But then I got to thinking, I, I looked at it close, more closely, and I realized, no, it's just because the, the dining room light over the table was on. And all those bulbs in that light were on, and so it made that little Christmas tree look very dim. But if you take that little Christmas tree and you put it in a dark room, that thing is pretty bright. So bright that the, the lady who gave it to us said that her husband makes, makes him turn it off, uh, makes her turn it off at night because he can't see. She wants it in a room, but it's so bright you can't see. Why? Because that room is dark, and that little Christmas tree is putting off all of that light. If you put that little tree in a dark room, it's evident that there is light shining forth from it. That's just the truth about light, right? If you put light in a dark room, you notice it. You can't help but notice light in darkness. The darker the room, in fact, the bigger the difference that light makes. Now, if we were to treat unity and disunity, unity and disunity, as though it were light and darkness, I think we would all agree that our world is very dark, right? If we would say that unity is light and disunity is darkness, we would agree that our world is very dark. Dark with disunity. In fact, in fact, excuse me, this past year has deepened some of these divisions among people and has created new ones. Racial divisions, which already existed, seem to be deepened in some ways over this past year. Political divisions, which already existed, uh, were definitely deepened over this past year. New divisions, such as how to respond in a pandemic were created over this past year. If 2020 has revealed anything, it has revealed that people are divided. And I say revealed. It's really nothing new. It's just brought to light what is already in our hearts. There's an obvious lack of unity that exists among fallen people in a fallen world. 
Just think about it. Uh, it wasn't that way all the way back in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. If we go back to the Garden of Eden as described in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see a perfect world that was perfect even in its unity, in its harmony. There we see God living in perfect harmony with humanity. And then we see humanity living in perfect harmony with humanity. Right? We see a man and a woman joined to one another in the bond of marriage and it was a perfect unity. Perfect unity between God and man. Perfect unity between humans. But then, you know what happened. Sin entered the world and humanity fell from this perfect state. The immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's disobedience was disunity. Think about it. Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they were immediately ashamed in front of one another. So they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Adam and Eve immediately hid from God out of fear. And Adam, when questioned by God, pointed the finger at his wife and said, She made me do it. You see, sin ushered in immediate disunity between God and humans and between human and human. And this division continues today. We can just look all around us and know that that is an accurate description of the world in which we live. And yet... It is in the darkness of division. Here's the hope that I want to share with us today. It is in the darkness of division that real, true, genuine unity can shine forth very brightly for all the world to see. And we know that the only true unity is that unity created between God and humans and between humans and humans through the redemption purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. Which means, church, that the brightest light of true unity in our world should be shining forth from the people of God. That is the church. Not from some other group out in the world. The brightest light of unity should be shining forth from the church. We could put it this way. The church should be a beacon of unity in a world of division. The church should be a beacon of unity in a world of division. And we're in a series of sermons dealing with the big doctrines of the Christian faith. And we've been looking at different psalms to look at these different doctrines. The doctrine of revelation and God and humanity and sin and Christ and salvation and the Holy Spirit. Today, we want to look at the doctrine of the church. And we're going to do so by looking at this short psalm, Psalm chapter 133. Now, just like with all of these doctrines, there's lots of places we could turn to in, in God's Word. And if we think about the church, probably the, the place that we would most often turn to, and rightly so, would be the New Testament. Because it's not until the New Testament that the church is established. And yet, God has always had a people who belong to Him. And so we can even go back to the Old Testament and learn about what God's intention is for His people and apply those truths to the church today. One essential quality for God's people, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is the quality of unity. The quality of unity. God's people are to be unified. As we study Psalm 133 today, I want to share with you six truths regarding unity among the people of God. And my prayer, church, this is my prayer for us today, is that we would be led to strive for greater and greater unity. Hear me, and you're going to hear this a couple different places maybe throughout the sermon. I don't want us to walk out of here and go, we're pretty unified as a church. Because I believe we are. I want us to walk out going, we must continually strive for greater and greater unity. We need it. Our world needs it. 
Six truths. Number one, unity is a desirable quality for the people of God. Unity is a desirable quality for the people of God. Now, I know, I know sometimes I give you really simple points and you think, golly, that's just so obvious. Uh, why, why do we have to spend time? I mean, of course it's desirable, right? Of course unity is desirable. But, but here's the thing. Sometimes I think there are, there are folks who, who don't place enough value on unity, and, and I would have to put myself in that category um, at, at times. And, and even others, and these are probably unbelievers, even if they go to church, who seem to prefer disunity over unity. And maybe you know some of those folks. They almost seem to desire disunity over unity. Have you ever heard the saying, people love a good fight? You ever heard that? People, people, people love a good fight. They show up for a good fight. Maybe you've been in a public place sometime some where there was a fight, whether a verbal fight or actual physical altercation. What happens? A crowd gathers, right? People don't just disperse and get away from it. A crowd always gathers. Now, maybe there's somebody who tries to break it up, but it draws a crowd because, unfortunately, people love a good fight. But that should not be true of those who belong to the church. Friends, unity, not disunity, is desirable for the people of God. Notice verse 1. says, Behold, like, look, pay attention, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How is it described? Good and pleasant. Unity is not something to ignore. It's not something which should bore us. Unity instead is something we should celebrate, is something we should long for, is something we should view as beautiful. It is to be preferred over disunity. This truth about unity is important to make note of because we will never strive to attain something that we don't desire. If you don't really desire something, you'll never work hard to attain it. And at the same time, we'll never work hard to hold on to something for which we've lost our desire. If we've lost that, let's say we gain something, but then we've lost our desire for it, we won't work to hold on to it. For instance, when I was probably about seven years old, there was a, there was a certain toy I wanted from the store. And, uh, and my mom uh, told me that I had to save up my money if I wanted to buy it. And uh, so I had to save up my allowance. And, and in our house, um, you started out with an allowance at the beginning of the week, but you lost portions of it if you failed to do your chores and so I tried to make sure I did all my chores so at the end of the week I got all of my allowance and I saved up I think I had to save up like 10 weeks for that thing Um, 10 weeks for a kid is a long long time but I really really wanted that toy and so I saved up and I did my chores and I I went to the store and I bought that toy with my money that I had earned but I got to thinking about that toy and uh, I have no clue where that toy is today I don't know And I don't ever remember being upset that at some point it was just gone. You see, I desired it in the beginning, and it led me to work hard for it, but then I lost my desire for it, and so I didn't work hard to hold on to it. I don't know if it broke or got lost or misplaced or or what happened. It just kind of slowly disappeared. And now here I am looking back, and I don't know what happened to that. I fear that sometimes we treat unity the same way. We, we, may, we may want it initially, but then we fail to keep desiring it, and that could lead to us losing it. 
You see, there are some churches which are in the midst of extreme disunity, and they need to begin, maybe for the first time, or the first time in a long time, to desire unity. There are other churches who are experiencing the joy of unity, and I would put our church in that. I would put our church in that. I, 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 I praise God. I feel that the Lord, I believe that the Lord has just blessed us with with great unity here at our church. But what we don't ever want to do is stop desiring that, get complacent, and then one day step back and go, what happened to it? Where did it go? We must keep desiring it or we may find ourselves letting go of it. Paul said this to the Roman believers. He said, so then, let us pursue. That means run hard after what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding? It's Romans chapter 14, verse 19. So number one, unity is a desirable quality for the people of God. Number two, unity attracts people to God. Unity attracts people to God. After the opening statement here in Psalm chapter 133, David uses some similes. Similes are where you go, such and such is like such and such. You use something else to explain what you're trying to explain. Such and such is like such and such. So you can see, see unity is like, unity is like in this psalm. He uses some similes to describe how good and pleasant unity is. The first one is that of oil. You see that there in the text. It's it's a specific kind of oil. It's the oil that was used to anoint the priests of Israel. And here in this psalm, uh, we see Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest of Israel, who really is the most well-known, being the first uh, and Moses' brother. He is the most well-known priest of uh, of Israel. Notice verse 2. It says, it is like, remember what's the it? Unity. Unity. It, unity, is like the precious oil on the head. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. If we were to go back, even further back in the Bible, to the books of Exodus and Leviticus, we would see that God provided um, a, a, a way and a means, a place and a means for his people to worship him. In those books, he gives instructions for the building of a tabernacle. That was the place. And instructions for various sacrifices to be made. And instructions for setting certain men apart to serve as priests there in the tabernacle, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And part of the ritual of setting apart the priest was pouring a special oil out on his head. That word precious is important because it takes us back to a very specific passage in uh, in the book of Exodus. This wasn't just some oil that somebody just had sitting around, all right, that they were using to oil up some stuff in their home or whatever. This was a very special, precious kind of oil. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 25, we find these words. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take... The finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic, notice the word aroma, aromatic, cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Notice the ingredients. What's, what's, we may not know every single, all of those ingredients, exactly what they are, uh, but, but what, what do they all have in common? They were chosen because they smelled good. They smelled good. It was made with the finest spices, specifically ones that had a sweet 
aroma. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm attracted to a sweet aroma. For instance, um, if I'm walking through the mall at Christmas time shopping for Christmas presents, the thing that turns my head, uh, two stores, the pretzel store and the cookie store in the mall. I mean, I can be walking, thinking about what I'm supposed to get, and I smell that, and I'm like, mmm, I need that, right? I need that right now. It's, a, it's this head-turning aroma that fills the mall. They do that on purpose, right? They want that smell to, to go out because it attracts people in. When the oil was poured onto the head of the priests, a head-turning aroma filled the air. David is saying in Psalm chapter 133, that is what unity is like. Unity puts off a head-turning aroma. And I believe the sweet aroma of unity really attracts both believers and unbelievers to God. Let's consider believers for just a second. We push believers away from the church and away from the Lord when we sow seeds of disunity. I'm talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the flip side is when we sow seeds of unity, we help our brothers and sisters draw closer to the Lord. At the same time, unity is attractive, I believe, to non-believers, the watching world. Friends, one of the greatest evangelistic endeavors we can make as a church is to continually pursue unity. Because while people might like a good fight, the lost in our world have zero interest in joining a group of people who are constantly fighting with one another, who are constantly at odds with one another. There's enough disunity already in our world. People don't want to sign up for more. Not only will the lost not want anything to do with the church if the church is filled with disunity, they may not even notice the church if the church is filled with disunity because we'll be like a dark light, if you could put it that way, shining in a dark world, which really isn't light at all. But if we are filled with unity, we are putting off a light that attracts a dark world to it. Church, our love for the lost must drive us to continually give off the sweet aroma of unity, not only so that people will be attracted to us, the church, but so that people will be attracted to our God, as we'll see later in this message, who is the giver of true and lasting unity. So, number two, unity attracts people to God. Number three, number three, unity is necessary to serve God. Unity is necessary. If you want to use our 2020 buzzword, it's essential, right? It's essential for unity, whichever one you want to put down. It's kind of tired of the word essential, so I use necessary. Unity is necessary to serve God. So there's more to learn from this simile of comparing unity to the oil than just that it smells good. Not only did it smell good, but it was a symbol of God setting apart these men for special service to himself. You see, you didn't just wake up one morning, jump out of your tent there in Israel and go, I think I'm going to be a priest today. I'm going to head off to the temple and grab me a a, a lamb on the way, start making some sacrifices, and I'll just be a priest. You didn't do that. You, You had to be specially set apart by God in order to serve. This being set apart was necessary. This ritual wasn't just something, just bells and whistles. It had to happen if this priest was going to be allowed to walk into the tabernacle and serve as a priest. Again, we look to God's instructions in Exodus chapter 30. Same passage I read through a minute ago. These two verses I'm going to read come after the ingredients for the oil. I'm going to read verse 25 and verse 30 of Exodus chapter 30. 
And just as I read, your, uh, you're going to hear the word holy. Remember the word holy, the um, way that you could define it is to be set apart as acceptable before God and useful to God. That's what the word holy means. All right, Exodus chapter 30. And you shall make of these, I just read this verse, a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. That means whoever's head it gets poured on is set apart. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. Notice the purpose here. That they may serve me as priests. It was a setting apart unto the service of God. The point I want us to see here is that the purpose of the oil was to to define these people as servants of the Lord. And without it, they couldn't serve in that capacity. The oil symbolically set Aaron and his sons apart, you could say it this way, as fit for service. Once they were anointed with this precious oil and did the other rituals, there were other things that went along with it, then they were fit for service. David in Psalm 133 is saying that unity is like this. Remember, unity is the theme of this passage. Unity is like the oil running down. Unity among the people of God makes the people of God fit for service. Here's the point. We must not think that God can use us for His glory as a church if we are filled with this unity. We must not think that we can serve God faithfully while we are in the midst of disunity. You see, church, I, I, know, I, know, I, I think I know you well enough to know that you and me and us together, we want to do the things that God has called our church to do. We want to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to minister to the hurting around us. We want to see that, that those right here in our community and those all around our world have an opportunity to respond to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to help strengthen believers and help encourage one another. We want to do all these things. We want to serve the Lord in all the ways He's given the church to serve the Lord. But at the, at the foundation, David is telling us of all of this, that what fits us for service, one of the primary things that fits us for service is unity. So we can't expect that we could do all of those things and at the same time be unified. In Ephesians, after Paul had spent the first three chapters explaining the saving work of God as it relates to the church, he then spends three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, teaching those who have been saved how to serve God. He talks about how to serve God at home and how to serve God in the community and how to serve God in the church and how to serve God as individuals before the Lord. But at the very beginning of chapter 4, right as he transitions into that section of how do you serve the Lord, this is what he says. This is in the book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, I urge you to serve the Lord. Take the salvation that God has given you and serve the Lord. But then notice what he says. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, one, one. Notice the emphasis on unity. In other words, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus that unity undergirds faithful service. If the Christians in Ephesus were going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called, they had to pursue maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the same is true for us, church. 
Unity is not optional for servants of God. It is essential. It is a necessity. Expecting God to use a disunited church is like expecting snow, not even in South Carolina in December, a white Christmas. It's like expecting snow in July. If I could just use some bad English for just a moment, which I'm pretty good at using bad English, it just ain't going to happen. It's just ain't going to happen. We can't expect God to use us if we're at odds with one another. Number three, unity is necessary to serve God. Number four, number four, unity is beneficial to all the people of God. Unity is beneficial to all the people of God. I'm going to hit this point pretty quickly, but I do want to try to make this point that David seems to be making in the imagery he gives. Remember, this is a song. This is poetry. Sometimes with poetry, it's not just like straightforward, 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 straightforward. You've got to see the picture that's being painted by the words that are being used and repetition of words. Notice in verse 3 that the oil, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 2, that the oil spreads. The oil spreads. It starts on Aaron's head. It runs down onto his beard. And then it runs down onto his robes. I think the picture that David is painting for God's people, which would apply to a church today, is that in a similar way, unity ends up trickling down and benefiting all of God's people. So here's what that means. I benefit as a follower of Jesus when you strive for unity. And you benefit as a follower of Jesus when I strive for unity. And even if there's a disagreement over here, and it seems like this person over here doesn't have anything to do with that, the disunity trickles down and ends up affecting all of the church. But at the same time, when we pursue unity over here, and, and, and I'm, I'm pursuing unity with this brother or sister in Christ, so I may be at odds with, even if somebody over here in the church doesn't even know that that's going on, what it ends up doing, it ends up impacting all of the church. It strengthens all of us. It trickles down and is a benefit to all of the people of God. Or we could even say that it extends beyond the walls, if you will, of our church. Not that the church is a building, but you get the metaphor there. Unity in one church helps the witness of another church. This unity in this church over here hurts the witness of this church over here who's striving for unity as the world sees all of us as the people of God. Church family, unity is not a sideline issue with minimal consequence on the people of God. And so you must pursue unity. I must pursue unity with with my brothers and sisters in Christ, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, because the whole church is being impacted by your pursuit or lack of pursuit of unity. So number four, unity is beneficial to all the people of God. Let's go on to number five. Number five, unity is compatible with diversity in the kingdom of God. Unity is compatible. That means it it fits together, fits together. It's not at odds. It fits together with diversity in the kingdom of God. You know, as we consider the call for unity, here's our temptation. Here's our temptation. Remember, 
back in the garden, we have the sin nature, and, uh, and, and we, we want to take the easy route, we, we don't think we can do it, or, or, or however you want to see, whatever, whatever the temptation is, um, we, we have this temptation to say, well, unity sounds good. I like it when the people around me agree with me, um, and, and we don't have to argue and fight with one another. And so here's what we're going to have to do. If we want to be unified, then we need to find a group of people who are the same age, same skin color, have the same upbringing, from the same area, live in the same part of town, have the exact same political views, shop at the same stores, speak with the same accent, have the same hobbies, listen to the same music, go to the same schools, pull for the same teams, etc., 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 but that's called a club. That's not called the church of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the thing. If we attempt to pursue unity that way, we will be robbing God of His glory, or at least attempting to do so. You see, this call for unity is not a call to try to erase every difference that exists between us. Nor is it a call for churches to be made up only of people who look like clones of one another. The truth is that one of the primary things, and I wish I I could spend a whole time talking about this, but I can't. Just go read the book of Ephesians, okay? But one of the primary things that makes the church incredibly glorious is the immense diversity which God intends to exist among His unified people. Verse 3 here introduces another simile, another like. It was like, unity is like oil, but here it is like the dew, verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now there's a verse that we read past really quickly. I don't know how many times I've read Psalm chapter 133. I've never really stopped and pondered the first part of verse 3. It just, face value, just doesn't sound that important. Oh, David wanted to talk about some mountains while he was writing his song. But he's making a point. David is here contrasting Mount Hermon and the mountains of Jerusalem. You see, Mount Hermon was the highest peak in Israel. By contrast, the mountains of Jerusalem were much smaller. There's a difference between this mountain and these set of mountains over here. But notice, they both received the same refreshing dew. Different and yet together. Unity among diversity. The point is that true unity is not supposed to erase diversity. Instead, it is supposed to, diversity is supposed to exist in the midst of unity. Unity in the midst of diversity. Like these mountains, the people of God come in all shapes and sizes, all languages and skin colors, all backgrounds and societal statuses. And yet we don't have to, nor should we seek to, erase these differences in order to be united as the people of God. Our God is more powerful than that. God had the power to put the same dew on the short mountains of Jerusalem as He did on the high mountain of Hermon. He didn't even have to make the mountains of Jerusalem taller. He left their God-given differences alone and bestowed upon them equally the dew from heaven. Friends, we do a great disservice to the glory of God in the name of Jesus when we as the church either say, sorry, you can't be united to us because you're different than us, or when we say, sure, you can be united to us, 
just become exactly like us. See, God intends for there to be diversity among his people as much as he intends for there to be unity among his people. Do you remember Paul's analogy to the church at Corinth? The church is one body made up of many members. There he was talking about the differences we share in our gifts and how we are able to serve the Lord. And he emphasizes over and over, it's one body with many members. And we need all the differences in that one body to be the church that God has called us to be. Now, to be clear, this call for unity, because some people take this the wrong way. This call for unity in the midst of diversity is not a call for universalism. Universalism says that you can believe whatever you want and we'll just be united. You can believe whatever you want. We just all get to heaven one day. You can be a Muslim or you can be a Jew or you can be a Christian or you can be an atheist. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, God will just love us all. We'll all end up in the same place. God's response to that is absolutely not. This is not a call to diversity of beliefs concerning the essential matters of the gospel, like Jesus being the Son of God, dying for our sins, being the only way to the Father, only by His grace through our faith in Him. We already read in Ephesians that there is one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So this is not a call for unity among diversity of beliefs concerning the essential doctrines of the faith. I mean, Jesus himself said he's going to divide people one day. He's going to to create a great divide in people one day. He's going to separate for all of eternity those who belong to him from those who don't belong to him. And there will be many in the category of don't belong to him. So this isn't a unity that ignores the essential matters of of the gospel and of scripture. What this is, though, is a call for unity among diversity concerning the things which should not divide us, but which often do, like the color of our skin or the language we speak or the amount of money we make or the style of music we like or the way that we think we should respond to a pandemic or our age or theological disagreements when it pertains to minor issues that aren't gospel essential. May we be a church that strives for both God-honoring diversity and unity at the same time. God is big enough, He's powerful enough to do this. Number six. Number six. And this isn't saving the worst for last. This is saving the best for last. This is the most important of all. Because we miss this, we miss this, we fall into the trap that we as humans are so prone to fall into. Well, let's go do it. We got this, we can go do it. We rally around diversity, we get in our holy huddle and we say, we got this, we can do it. And God is still back in the locker room. We left him out of it. Because I don't know about you, but these first five things we've mentioned and all that we've seen already just in two and a half verses of Scripture, I can't do it. And you can't do it. And we together, even us together, all the strength that we can muster, we can't do it on our own. Number six, unity is attainable only by God's grace. It is attainable only by God's grace. If you're sitting there wondering, how in the world can a people so diverse be so unified? Well, I have bad news and good news. Bad news is, 
You can't, I can't, we can't experience this good and pleasant unity on our own. Adam and Eve's sin has been passed down to us. We are arrogant and unloving. We harbor bitterness and we hold grudges. We play favorites and we are prejudiced. We are selfish and we want our own way. That's the bad news. But church, there is good news. I mean, we're reading the Bible after all, right? I mean, this is a book of good news. The good news is that God can and has provided what we need to experience this unity. Notice the last part of verse 3. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. There is referring back to Zion, which is a reference to the place where God's people dwell and specific to this passage. It is the place where God's people are dwelling in unity. Church, where you find God's people dwelling in unity, there you find evidence of God's blessing. A blessing that He has commanded, not a blessing that we have earned. Friend, that is called grace. That is called the grace of God. It is a gift. And notice that it's basically synonymous here with eternal life. Life forevermore is a blessing that only God can give, and it is something that no one deserves. And just like that is unity. Unity, true and genuine and pure and holy, lasting unity, is something only God can give, and it is something that no people deserves. And yet this entire psalm is written in such a way that the grace of God flowing down from God to man is highlighted throughout this whole psalm. Three times, notice here, remember his poetry, three times David speaks of something coming down. In verse 2, the oil runs down onto the beard, and then it runs down onto the robes. And in verse 3, the dew falls down onto the mountains. Three times our hearts have been prepared for the answer to the question, how is unity available? It is only attainable. If it comes down, it is only attainable if it flows from heaven to earth. And church, here is the even better news. It has come down. This unity has come down. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. About 2,000 years ago, this blessing of eternal life, And this blessing of division-shattering unity was laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Even in His coming, we see signs that this God-man would unite people in such a way that could only be described as an act of God. Notice the unity and diversity we see even in the Christmas story. I mean, there you see a peasant girl named Mary. Peasant girl named Mary. And the wife of a priest whose name was Elizabeth this wife of a priest, and there they are, peasant and wife of a priest, embracing, if I could put it this way, in a very pregnant hug, as the baby and the wife of the priest jumped as he entered the presence of the baby and the wife of the peasant. Unity and diversity. There, in the Christmas story, you see shepherds who lived at the bottom of the social classes, being the first invited guests to witness the arrival of the King of Heaven and Earth. There in the Christmas story, you see a young couple with their newborn baby in the arms of an old man named Simeon. 
This young couple standing next to old man Simeon, old man Simeon holding this young couple's baby boy, and both young and old sharing in the birth of the Christ child. There in the Christmas story, you see wealthy, notice the diversity here, wealthy Gentile, that means non-Jewish foreigners from the East, perhaps having a different native language, perhaps wearing a different color skin, bowing down in the home of this Hebrew couple, worshiping and giving expensive gifts to this little non-wealthy Jewish boy. Friends, even in the coming of Jesus, we see signs that this child would break down deep barriers of division that existed among people all across the world. But it was at the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus destroyed that which would separate us from one another. Notice these words in Ephesians chapter 2. For He Himself, Jesus is speaking of, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together in a dwelling, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you realize that when we pursue disunity, we are running from the work that Jesus did on the cross. He died to destroy that which would divide us. The reason Jesus came to earth was to unite a diverse people to the one true God and to unite those diverse people into one body by dying for our sin, which, remember, back in the garden is the cause of our disunity. It took Jesus dying on the cross to destroy what started with Adam and Eve in the garden. The glory of the gospel of Jesus is that God is able to rescue from their sin and unite into one body people from every nation, language, and tribe. People from every skin color. People from every class of society. People from every part of town. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I hope that you've seen that the worst thing in your life right now is not only that there probably are divisions between you and someone else or you and other people, but there's a division that exists between you and God. And Jesus came to reconcile you to God first. And then you can be reconciled to your fellow man. And so you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross to reconcile you back to the Father. And let me speak a word to those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have had our relationship to God reconciled. What does our relationship with others look like? Even in the body of Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's an extended uh, blood family member who's also a 
member of the family of God. Maybe it's a, a friend who we're not related in any earthly way, but we are united as one through the Holy Spirit and our common faith in Jesus Christ. Think about our relationships. Are there some seeds of disunity that perhaps you have sown? Perhaps you need to, with the Lord's help, by His grace, seek to reconcile those relationships. Church, we live in a world that is dark with this unity. But I don't want that to be a burden to us. It shouldn't. Instead, we should see it as an opportunity. Yes, the light gets to shine brightly. Yes, we have an opportunity by pursuing true and lasting unity to reach the world as they see what is only possible through one whose name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a beautiful psalm. It's short and sweet, as we would say, and yet it's so full and deep. How good it is, how pleasant it is, from brothers, sisters in Christ, people who have been united by none other than the blood of Jesus, are united as one. Not just saying, oh, we go to the same church. Oh, we gather in the same room on a Sunday morning. Father, that's just scratching the surface of the unity that is to exist among your people. And so, for the glory of the name of Jesus, who left heaven to come to earth, who even in His coming showed signs that He was going to do something that no one has ever been able to do and no one will ever be able to do. That He was going to bring unity where all the world could muster up was disunity. He was going to break down barriers between God and man and between man and man. Between humans and humans, between humans and God. And it was going to cost Him His life. Father, for the glory of the gospel, may we worship you by being united, by remaining united, by continually striving for unity, a perfect unity that can only come from heaven. Father, that is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.